We are going to have a fun show tonight. We were talking about Elian Gonzalez off air. When was the last time you heard a good Elian Gonzalez conversation? Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Before we start, please hit like. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you really dig what we're saying, hit that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. We're approaching 15,000 subscribers. I don't know what that means. I don't think anything changes once you hit that, but this is a nice milestone. It doesn't cost you anything to hit that notification bell. Also, before we start, I want to remind people that tickets are on sale right now for the book launch and meet and greet event in the San Francisco Bay Area. My extended essay turned into a mini book by Everyday Analysis. Doing a launch event with some of my friends in the metal and punk world. Definitely Chris Contos from Machine Head and Forbidden are going to be there. Rick Hanolt, original guitar player, is going to be there. Also Craig LeCicero, also in, also was in Forbidden. I guess still in Forbidden because I just did a European run. Was in the band Death. One of the original death metal bands. <laughs> And there's some other people that we can't name them yet, even. We're still waiting to confirm who's all going to be there. We're going to have a panel discussion. We're definitely going to have a Q&A. Definitely going to have some fun mingling. I think friend of show, friend of real life, Ben Burgess is supposed to be coming up with me. So it's going to be a very, very good time. Again, wherever you're watching or listening to this show, tickets are in the description or a link to tickets are in the description. Check that out. That being said... Let me bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour, a.k.a. the Haitian king of Miami. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. What's up, dude? How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing good. I went to the Pascal Robert School of Fashion recently. Wow. I'm trying to look like like a black preppy. Am I pulling it off? I actually spent many years dressed like that daily. You spent? I think it's spent. present tense. <laughs> That's a nice, really professional polo shirt. I like that. Right? Right? The button-down collars, very, very nice. eBay. I would, wear, I would wear something like that if they still made them in fat man-friendly sizes. I This is a medium, and it's the largest shirt I've ever owned in my life. I haven't had shirts this big since Baggy was, like, in in the 90s. That's very, that's very, um, that's very, uh, I'm in the law firm by myself. I took off my suit tie. I've got a brief due tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. It's dark outside. My family is far away from me. I don't even have bad Chinese food to eat. I don't get this done tomorrow. I'm out of a job. That's what that looks like. Well, let's bring in everybody's favorite fashion critic. She is the Haitian Joan Rivers. Please welcome M. Tucson. Haitian Joan Rivers. Wow. Yes. Not bad. Minus the contempt for poor people. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've heard your off-air conversation. <laughs> Is Hello. he really wearing that? Hello to my well-dressed boys. <laughs> Tucson, do I look like a black professional that drives a black Saab? BMW. Ooh. Wow. Black Ooh. man's wheels. Black man. <laughs> Black man's wheel. We call it. <laughs> you know the thing about BMWs is interesting though. BMW is like the, the luxury car that was always the preppy guy's car because drug dealers never appropriated BMWs. They appropriated <laughs> They appropriated Mercedes, Audis, but they never really appropriated BMWs. I think they tried it. You just can't. The 90s was a big drug dealer year for BMWs. You could really soup up. If you had a car kit on your 90s BMW and a pager, 
I'm talking like 91, 88. I probably sold drugs. <laughs> There's a good chance you sold drugs. That was one of my dad's favorite cars was a BMW. And your dad sold drugs? No, he did not. My father was a foreign car specialist. I'm, that's what all drug dealers used as a front for their operation. I mean, isn't that what the drug dealers had in New York? Nah, man, it was a lot of uh, a lot of Mercedes, a lot of them, um, a lot of those sports like Jeeps. One of those like really weird Jeeps that came yeah. out. Yeah, it was a lot of that. Yeah, trucks, Jeeps, or whatever. Those those sporty Jeep. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. The sidekick. Yeah, that was a big one. Because Pascal, you're old enough to remember those New York drug dealers that everybody idolizes. I actually remember uh, being a teenager when crack was introduced to Jamaica Queens. I remember hearing people have a conversation about this new drug that was going to be like the really hot business opportunity, you know, uh, and um, it was a conversation about people talking about crack. Not that I lived in like the deep immersions of the hood. Mm-hmm. But I had like a teenage fast food job, and there were like two cats who were like really from the hood, and they were talking about crack enthusiasts. Basically, like the birth of crack. I was like, oh. you, you worked with two crack enthusiasts, two early crack enthusiasts, <laughs> crack influencers. <laughs> I wish I could have been there for the crack influencer talks. Steve was like, Polo has had a grip on the black community for too long. We need to let that logo go. (laughs) Steve wants to to sue Ralph Lauren for reparations. Damn, remember when everybody wanted to sue Ralph Lauren for reparations? Him and Tommy Hilfiger? I remember. That that was like in the 90s, right? Wasn't Mm -hmm. this a conspiracy that uh, Tommy Hilfiger owned a few slave plantations in Bahamas or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought it was just that he didn't want black people wearing his clothes. Same with Timberland. I really like the slave plantation, the Bahamas theory, way better. We should go with that. And that's what I'm using moving forward. By the way, Timberland is celebrating 50 years this year. Interesting that they don't want to combine that with the rap being at 50 years. Though. It's interesting. What, who said they're not combining it? You or Timberland? I haven't seen it. You haven't looked closely enough. I remember Timberland's long enough to realize when it was really just a working class guy's shoot and nobody in the hood was wearing them. That's not true. This was at the same crack conversation you were at? No, you, this you was like the- <laughs> I Your White Castle crack conversation. <laughs> I don't remember, but Timberland's used to actually make, Timberland used to make a black leather version that was very common amongst like car mechanics. I know this because my dad was a car mechanic and he used to wear Timberland's. <laughs> crack enthusiast is that like Pookie from New Jack City Scotty help me I'm gonna die Scotty help me I'm gonna die <laughs> crack enthusiast has to be a new thing well look we have a guest here that, that time is of the essence with the 2024 election right around the corner, uh, that's the same conversation is beginning to take place. The same conversation we've been having uh, for the last eight years or so, and that is who will run pr- against the presumed GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. The massive amount of media attention that Trump garnered on both mainstream and independent platforms has allowed many people to forget one of the worst ten years in the White House, and that would be the 43rd president. George W. Bush. Pascal, do you remember the Bush presidency? Tragically, I do very well. Tucson, I know you're only 28. Do you remember the Bush presidency? Vaguely, because I'm so young. I was actually shocked at our guest's age. Um, He was younger than I thought. Bush Jr. entered the White House on shaky ground with a questionable electoral victory over Democratic Party incumbent and former VP under Bill Clinton, Al Gore. His approval and hero status for many Americans was cemented by his response to the 9-11 tragedy in New York City. 
He then lost a lot of support with the decision to invade Afghanistan. Under the Bush, the, under Bush the second, we started a war on terror, which became a trillion-dollar, multiple-decade affair, where one U.S. higher-up asked a general, "So, who's the bad guys?" From historic tax cuts for the 1% to the Patriot Act, deregulation, and more, George W. Bush was maybe the worst president of all time. Our guest today made a docu-series where we revisit not only the man in office, but we take a look at the time and the political pulse of the people during his reign. MTD, oh, no, we didn't set it up. I'm so sorry. Please welcome our guest, Christopher Bell. It looks like you're in Miami, too. <laughs> yeah, this is the only background I could choose, so uh, I chose it. <laughs> That's a fun background. I remember Pascal was using that background for a while. People thought it was actually oh. his house. <laughs> it's my Playboy Mansion. <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Now, watching your series, I think uh, we both like to use... Uh, footage from pop culture moments to tell a story and I really dug the way you mixed in the commercials and even the music um, since I put stuff up on YouTube I'm always terrified to try to use music <laughs> and I think in your 2003 episode you used Avril Lavigne and I, and I fell out I hadn't heard that song in so long and I was like we could do a whole episode about just this part of the show um, but I truly enjoyed the way that you capture the moment of not just the Bush presidency, but also kind of the pulse of a nation at that time. Was that like a goal that you were trying to do with this? Yeah, I mean, especially because, um, you know, I couldn't have everything. And it's like, you know, I have this idea that I want to do something about George W. Bush. So it's like, it's very narrow and, you know, you want to, you don't want to deny like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, all these people, all these institutions, like how do you kind of broaden it? And I thought like making it so that you're experiencing it like very viscerally mm -hmm. um, was something I thought was important and, you know, probably less boring than like a super informational documentary would be and really just not my style um so yeah i had a lot of fun with it and it is like we were talking before that it's a very uh kind of a scary <laughs> depressing series so hopefully the pop culture stuff um actually probably makes it scarier in many ways but maybe you'll smile a little bit <laughs> maybe you, you can have the little nostalgia uh, little um, pump I, I don't know I found it poignant. I mean, even the title, Do You Miss Me Yet? And I'm not going to lie, I definitely, you know, did a, did some background research on you and, and, and read an interview uh, that you had done. Um, not even the one that you sent me. And you talk about the moment where you saw uh, Michelle Obama hugging George W. Bush as kind of an inspiration to, to want to revisit his presidency because I think with Donald Trump, a person who, for whatever reason, it's almost like Americans forget, he's been in the cultural sphere of this country since the early, like predominantly since the early 80s, but even, you know, kind of in the late 70s, uh, Donald Trump is a figure, especially on the East Coast. Um, and we forget about how divisive George W. was, how much people hated him. The largest protest we see in world history is done in the 2003 in the lead up to this next election in 2004, which he wins against John Kerry. And I think there's a lot of parallels that we can see today, even. Um, were you trying to make those parallels or not? Or are you just trying to tell a story? Um, both. Um no, I was trying to, um, I mean, honestly, you know, it's like looking at the footage and what the footage is telling you, obviously I come from, you know, a certain mindset, you know, whatever from the left. So I am, the footage is telling me things and I'm 
seeing it through that lens. Um, but you are seeing like some rhyming um, with the way uh, everything is today, with the way the internet is today, with the way um, media is today, the way media consumption is today. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, there are things that rhyme. And uh, part of what I wanted to do with the storytelling too is to see how things like would accelerate or develop over time. Um, like the way he used religion and the way Mm. um, like religious religion and and conservatism, like sexual conservatism. And then Mm. the way pop culture reacted, like soap commercials got really sexual. (laughs) Um, You know, those kinds of things I really was interested in showing and kind of like piecing together on my own, like these little discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Pascal, I'm sure you have a heavy question. So many. You know, one of the things that I found really fascinating about your documentary is that in my mind, as I was watching it, I was comparing it to another recent documentary that I watched about two or maybe three years ago. And I actually told Jason about it. We talked about it maybe earlier in our uh, work together as uh, podcasters was a documentary that was done on, uh, I think it was Reagan. Showtime on Ron Reagan, yeah. as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, 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 I it harkened to my mind was that how much that documentary was editorialized by commentary. As a matter of fact, the driving force of that documentary is the very editorialized commentary and how starkly that that diverges from your format with this documentary about Bush in that there's no editorialization whatsoever about the narrative in in the film. It's literally just footage from real time events that occur during the Bush presidency and you do it in chronological order by year. So what's very interesting about your format and, and I'll be very honest with you, I appreciated your format better than the Reagan documentary, only because as much as, as a leftist, I despise Ronald Reagan, I do kind of feel like for an objective person who was neither right nor left, they may have a problem with that Reagan documentary because it was too editorialized. And I know a right winger wouldn't even pay attention to it. But the thing I like about your documentary is that regardless of what your political opinions are, you're not going to be uh, turned off by the editorialization of the narrator because there really is no narrator and you're just watching the facts of the presidency. And what's really interesting about that to me is that those facts are horrific enough on their own to make you say like, oh my God, this guy was really horrible. I still make the argument, and I think Jason may or may not agree with me, that Bush is still the mo- most unpopular president we've had in recent history. And my argument even including uh, uh, Trump, and I will say this, Trump is unpopular to a faction of Americans, but there's also a faction of Americans that love Trump a lot. I don't know anyone who was like, oh, man, I love George W. Bush. He was a you need to go to Texas. Well, te- I mean, <laughs> Texas and the people who, lo- who lined his pockets, I mean, who, whose pockets he lined. I knew broke cats that love, I mean, look, it's the same with all these people. There's people that love Ronald Reagan if you ask why they really don't. There's a lot of people. Oh, don't get twisted. There's a lot of Republicans. Who there's love. a lot of people. There's there's people that love George W. as well. You think this is George W. Bush fan club? I mean, I think this is fan clubs for all these people. There's a Calvin Coolidge fan club somewhere. It's not the same love, though. As like, <laughs> the as like, as like <laughs> yes. Specifically him. Um, it's not the same love as like Obama and Trump. Like I don't think people love Bush in the same way. Those people were different kinds of figures. As far this is just my opinion, and I'd love to get your take on this, Chris. Um, Obama and Trump are these kind of weird pop culture transformative figures that happen to be presidents, where they don't really have histories politically. We can say what we want about George W. Bush. He was still governor of Texas. He wasn't the greatest governor. Political family. Comes from a political family. He's he's the first junior president we've seen in, what, what, like 100 years? Uh, 
it's it's a little different, George Bush. And he came along with a controversial election in 2000, and then 2001, everything changes. I've said this before on the show, and I'll, and I'll say it again. In the airport of Palm Springs, which is a bit of a conservative, very small city in the desert of Southern California, there is a 9-11 memorial. As you're going through the checkpoint, you know, where you take your shoes off and everything. I don't know if you guys have ever been in this airport. It was so shocking that, you know, live show producer Jordan had to almost made a, a public stink about it. We had to calm her down. It's the pictures of the buildings exploding. And then, <laughs> this what? is as you're getting on. Yeah. And then it's a picture of George Bush. Smiling? You know that picture where he's on the top of the rubble giving the speech? Oh, God. Yeah, with that whole moment for a lot of people is just washed out of their memories because Trump was just it was just such a big deal for people in 2016 that we forgot all about 2000, 2001, 2003 and 04. We forgot all about it. Yeah, I mean. um, People don't retain that stuff, the like very recent history, it just it's not retained. Um, and I don't know what that, what things were like, you know, before I was born, but I would say that probably has a lot to do with kind of 24 seven mass media, especially like internet, social media. Like we don't remember these kinds of things. And then that's just like the day to day, like going to your job, you know, you vote and nothing really changes. And you're like, you know, some people are still really into voting for their team. Um, Mm, mm -hmm. for reasons of like, oh, I'll piss off the other person or whatever. But like our lives don't really change fundamentally anymore. Um, So it's just like, why would they remember it? You know, I don't know. Um, He's spoken to hyperbole. Like, I love the fact that you had all those speeches in there. Because Bush Jr. never really says anything too crazy. He kind of sounds like a 12 year old that got to be class president at like 65. There's a couple of really weird lines. Um, like I have that one where he's like, the future itself is dying. Um, weird <laughs> tagline kind of thing. Um, I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> yes. How about this one? My so mother told me that when you're chewing on a pretzel, you chew carefully. Listen to your mother. Yes. <laughs> My mom always said, Chew before you swallow. Listen to your mother. Yeah. I had, <laughs> yeah. Um, There's a moment. Let's not forget go that ahead, go ahead. allegedly, mm-hmm. this is a guy most people believe was like kind of doing coke till he was 40. I mean, you know, allegedly. Allegedly. Like he stopped at 40. Like 40 was <laughs> too old. You know, I mean, basically he was kind of like, you know, he was, he was the prodigal son of the uh, the Bush family. He was the ne'er do not, not even ne'er do well, not even doing well at all, son. You know, um the the one who was governor of Florida who I can't I hate so much I can't Jeb remember. Bush. Jeb Jeb was like the the favorite son of the of the Bush family. But he had Georgia. those daughters. He had those daughters. His daughters were in Achilles heel. Think he about this for a also, second people. You know, he, he mentioned he had- Daughters he married a brown sense. woman. He married a brown woman as well. So. Now, he, you know, it had had Trump not, you know, embarrassed him in 2015 in that debate, which was a weird embarrassment. I don't know why people had such a, oh my god, I can't believe what he said. But you know, Jeb Bush is kind of the guy the Republicans need. Would Jeb have been the guy if there was no Trump that year? Yes. That's what I thought. Did you think so too, Pascal? I believe that Jeb Bush represented everything the Republican Party believed that it was until Trump. Oof. And that moment, for Mm -hmm. for some reason, it just hit people a certain way, and then the news just took off with it. I mean, mean, you know, Jason, you really just led led into something that's very important. I was thinking about this before we started the show. And maybe this is more about Trump. I think it's somewhat more about Bush. The Bush regime the bush family the bush dynasty i you know i'm kind of a student of like uh the traditional 
wasp ruling class and their institutions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever read C. Wright Mills, The Power Elite. It's a really good book. It's interesting. C. Wright Mills, I believe he was a socialist, but it's basically a book that that analyzes the institutional mechanisms that the traditional Anglo-Saxon wasp ruling class used to maintain their power from their schools to their social clubs, secret societies and all that stuff, right? And it really lets you know that like at a certain time in American history, particularly before like the civil rights movement and kind of democratizes the ruling class, right? There was a time where you had to be from the right family, go to the right schools, know the right people and be of of a certain group of people. They actually had this thing called the uh, the social register. Mm. It's literally a book with the name of certain families. And if your name is not in the social register, then you are not part you are not part of the Anglo-American ruling class. Right? And the Bush family are part of that Anglo-American ruling class. To get your point, Jason, that I found is fascinating when you talk about how you know, Trump basically kind of embarrasses Jeb out of power. One of the most fascinating things about that 2016 Republican primary mm-hmm. is that Donald Trump, who was really kind of a nouveau riche, kind of urban white trash, new, like new Jack millionaire, if you, will, <laughs> if you will, compared to these families, mm-hmm. uses the most absurd ridiculous, clownish, racist, insane talking points to take over the traditional ruling class political party in in public in in public and humiliates literally a family that had ancestors on the Mayflower. And it's you know I, maybe you guys can point me to some. I'm talking about to the people in the chat. I'd love to read someone do a deep dive into that particular aspect of Trump's rise. Because I haven't seen enough discussion about how Trump kind of marks the fall of the traditional WASP ruling class in American society. I would like to know your thoughts on that. Sorry to be taking too much of the time here, too. <laughs> I mean, is that family really fallen, or is it just not yeah. as mild as they were before? Yeah, is it like too early to tell for something I'm, like that? I'm asking. I'm I'm willing to. I'm I'm you know I'm I'm asking for input. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if I feel that 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 type of family has fallen. Yeah, know. that's really interesting. Do we believe that those type those families still are the ruling class in America? Are they? Yeah. I think they're still the ruling class. They're just not as popular as politicians. Well, well, listen, I think that one thing that happens right after the civil rights movement is that there is a democratization of the ruling class. And I'm not talking about particularly with black or brown folk, but I was I was having a conversation with a very close friend of mine. And I think one of the biggest secrets of the civil rights movement is not so much how it increases it gives social mobility to black and brown people, but how white ethnics who normally would have been left out of the working, the ruling class filter upward financial services, banking, political sectors, and so on and so forth. And how that's, there's a kind of unwritten reality as to how they start to be take positions in American society that were traditionally reserved for the wasp elite and particularly in corporate power, media, so on and so forth. And I'm wondering in that 50-plus year counter-revolution, has the traditional blue-blood uh, wasp elite in America really kind of fallen down a few pegs in their control of the levers of American society? I'm asking for those who have thoughts. Chris is over here pondering his next documentary series. <laughs> I was thinking of Tucker Carlson. Wouldn't he Ooh. that? He comes from that class. There's no question yeah. about that. That elite I'm, class or that new elite class? No, he comes from that elite class. He's that yeah. Um, I don't know. Are they, maybe they're just not as popular with. I feel like that's also a class that stayed away from social media, and their kids tended to as well. 
whereas the Trumps of the world and that those families kind of became social media darlings. And there's a reason why we talk about these people and their kids, especially in the, in the mid aughts. Yeah. yeah. Cause now I'm thinking of like Nepo babies and stuff like that, where it's like, there is like ruling of the media by the high class more so than, well, maybe not ever, but then in a long time where you like, you have to have money in order to be, you know, a personality or even a filmmaker or artist or something like that. Yeah. So. I mean, think, think about some of the more popular filmmakers and their last names, even actors and their last names and who they're affiliated with. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's son is an actor, uh, Sophia Coppola, uh, uh, Nick Coppola, who everyone knows as Nick Cage. Um, who else is an actor that's a son or, or a director or a musician? Taylor Swift comes from money. I mean, there's so many people that come from a little bit of money, but not old money. Old money is still old money. They're just not in the kind of media sphere, I think. I don't know. It could be wrong. We're just riffing here, folks. We're just riffing. <laughs> there's a guy, I was wondering, is anyone for, there's a guy who really had a, had a book that was, says it touches on these subject matters. I'm trying to scroll up. But I do I do want to ask you something kind of about about Bush, which you know, may be relevant to this as well. There's a moment when Bush takes over. You, you know, a lot of people do believe Al Gore is, is going to be president. And it kind of had the same feeling of 2016, where a lot of people just believed once Obama was gone, Hillary Clinton was going to step in into that position. And there was some hatred for Al Gore because of uh, the sex scandal of Bill Clinton in 99, <clears throat> more so than even like the real estate scandal of Bill Clinton, probably. And there's also this moment in America where we're financially doing well due to deregulation, right? The suburbs are getting built out uh, rapidly. Um, the real estate is an industry that people are run are falling in and, and making six figures overnight um, because of uh, the ease of credit, we're extending credit to, to to young people with credit cards on college campuses the day they walk on campus. Um, Bush, in his debates with Al Gore, and you put one of these in, and I think it's the first or second episode, which I found really interesting. Maybe it was the first one in 2000. Mm -hmm. um, in this debate with Al Gore, he's talking. Al Gore's talking about nation building, and I think the Middle East. And Bush is talking about, like, we don't nation build. We punish evildoers. Um, we are the nation of might. Is there something to be said about how comfortable we were as a nation that we're just so accepting of, like, these overly simplistic narratives, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, now we're getting to the territory that nobody wants to talk about in this country, which is, like, any other country um, <laughs> outside of ours. Mm -hmm. um, which is probably a little weird for me to say, given what's going on now. Um, but I don't know, like, uh, I don't know how many people know really what's going on. Um, you know, the history between Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of comfort in knowing like we're safe, nothing to will happen to us. Mm -hmm. And stuff goes on outside of this country that we're involved in and some people a lot of people don't like it but they don't have to pay attention to it and it doesn't really affect us um and they don't see like the kind of bigger picture even like how we benefit of that even though it doesn't feel like we're getting anything ever um <laughs> anymore but yeah there is a lack of like curiosity and care of like you know, not even solidarity or anything like I've done a lot of work um, about the Middle East, people from the Middle East, um, what's going on in their countries, you know, and miss me at a lot of um, Iraq and Afghanistan stuff. And sometimes yeah. people are very like, you know, I have interest in other countries outside of U.S. and especially like what we've done to them, who we have overthrown. Someone wants to say like, hey, let's nationalize this resource so that our country can develop and be better. And we're like, no, um, <laughs> you know, I want to know about that. I want to tell people about that. That's very bad. Um, sometimes people are like, what is your interest? I don't get it. Like, 
it's not even just like education or solidarity. Like some people are like, why would you ever want to know? Like, why would you ever care about something like that? It's just very strange to me, but I'm also just like day-to-day -day life. It's so hard to pay bills and stuff. Like I, again, really don't blame people too much. Did you, I mean, Tucson, you're, you're alive in this era. Pascal, you're alive in this era. Did it feel that way to you? Because if you watch that debate, Nation building is still not a really good thing to be talking about. We're talking about empire, right? We're talking about protecting our vested interests, putting people we want in power. And Bush Jr. is talking about, you know, stomping out evil all over the world. Starts a war on terror. And uh, David Cross, I think, kind of nailed it when he said a war on terror is like a war on jealousy. Um, <laughs> like wiped out all the jealous people. Um what did we think was going to happen with this amorphous war on terror? It, it did enable this country to double down on kind of the culture war of brown people, especially Muslim brown people being terrorists, right? That still is a thing during the Cold War. Um, and definitely when you talk about the war on terror, it becomes kind of, well, all these people are religious fundamentalists in these Muslim countries, and, and they're all just terrorists, because what did George Bush say? They hate our freedom. There's, there's some really interesting uh, responses to the things you bring up. One of them is that, let us remember, right, and I know, you know, Jason and, all, you know, most of us oldest remember that. By 2000, it had been 25 years since the United States had been in any kind of, besides the, the, the Grenada uh, uh, situation in 84 under Reagan, yeah. it, there had been 25 years since America had been in any kind of military conflagration abroad. I think that's one of the longest periods of time in American history where America was outside of really any serious or even insignificant foreign intervention and i gotta tell you something one of the things that shocked me about the war on terror and george gb bush is that he did something that at one time in my life i thought was impossible because i gotta tell you as someone who grew up as a generation extra in america i vividly remember like in the 80 late 80s particularly particularly thinking that the idea of Americans getting people to like get like rah rah about going to war, that's just that, that ain't gonna happen. Like, not with my generation, not after Vietnam. I just didn't see it as possible. I remember I remember when the first Gulf War in ninety one, mm -hmm. you know, that was like a huge deal for every, in everyone's mind. It's like, oh, we're going to a war? America's really going to war in another land? We got to watch it on the news. Yeah, and we got to I was like, war? It, it was kind of shocking to me. And then, you know, when you think about it, two Bushes got America to go back to the idea of going to war, you know, Bush the father and Bush the son. And uh, we we were in perpetual war. Someone argue we're still in perpetual war throughout the whole millennium. Through mm -hmm. literally the whole millennium. And people are talking about uh, the Muslim community. This is going to be, I mean, I'm going to say it. This might shock you. Particularly in South Florida, I can speak exclusively South Florida. The Muslim community in South Florida supported George W. Bush in that election. You know why? Because Bush publicly came out and said he was opposed to a certain law that categorized certain Muslim organizations as quote-unquote or individuals as terrorist suspects. Uh, people in the Muslim community had been complaining about this categorization during the Clinton administration to no, to, to no, uh, you know, to no kind of result. And Bush had stated during his campaign that he was opposed to it. And I, I, and there were many conversations in segments of the Muslim community where they were like, you know, this is our guy. Do, do literally supported Bush because he came out against 
this particular connotation that was that was denoting that Muslims were terrorists, this kind of legislation. And then a year later, 9-11 happened, and those people felt like fools. Toussaint, you want to add something? Um, no, I don't have anything to add to that. Boo. I have my own questions. Oh, okay. Go for it. Well, I want to say that the the series is not just footage of Bush. It's also footage of Iraq and Afghanistan and victims of the bloodshed and, and absolute violence there um, that the United States brought to those countries. Um, I, I, I like that you included that. As an American, I don't think we get to see that enough. So um, I also wondered, you know, you also have this footage of Bush basically being charming, interspersed with the footage of Iraq and Afghanistan and all the press conferences and all of this sort of thing. Was there any part of you that was ever swayed by Bush, charmed by him? At any point, did you want to have a beer with him? <laughs> um, so I'm celiac. Uh, I can't have beer. <laughs> um, <laughs> good answer. Good answer. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have gotten this question a lot. Uh, no, nah, I don't like him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't like him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, like, I spent 2014 is when I started the project kind of on and off and 2020 I couldn't really do anything else so that was like really like hunker down and stuff so like seeing a lot of same footage especially like the jokey stuff mm -hmm. so was I like quoting it to myself yes um he was funny you know people are funny um but I mean, it'd be interesting to hang out with him and what's he going to say? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I would probably uh, talk to him about certain things. Um, so, yeah, I guess I would do it. But no, I don't really, I, I wasn't really charmed by him. And I think, uh, you know, again, like sitting with the footage for so long, I'm also sitting with like, you know, footage of um, disaster in other countries and even stuff here. Um, and I do remember that was like, you know, actually seeing all that footage, I was surprised and actually seeing footage of like Iraqis and Afghanis talking, you know, being interviewed to the camera about like what they think and some people, you know, um, uh, saying interesting stuff like, oh, it was cool when we had Saddam. This sucks now. Oh, um, you know, I have a lot of hope for Obama. And then. The next person interviewed is like, oh, nothing's going to change. This is going to be the same. Um, right. You don't see that. You don't hear that. And, you know, we probably um, have uh, friends who are at least Middle Eastern who express this stuff, but like it wasn't really like going on in the news. Um, so always watching that and always like trying to like incorporate a lot of that stuff. Um, that was going on and having like opinions and, and dealing with, you know, what we wrought as a country elsewhere. I definitely want to ask this. I know Toussaint wrote this question in your, in your piece, you put uh, a clip of Michael Moore winning the Oscar for Fahrenheit nine 11. Um, and Michael Moore, people watching the show probably don't remember or wouldn't agree with this, but he was like King, leftists at the time yeah like nothing was nothing was more left and nothing challenged power challenged power more than michael moore and a roger and me documentary bowling for columbine we can look back at these things and, and find issues and find them problematic here and there now but at the time michael moore was kind of this truth teller um also, this is a moment where we have, again, I, I want to bring this up because as we're seeing a lot of protests now, we definitely saw a lot of protests in 2020. And on this show, we constantly ask the question, you know, what 
did people get out of it? I was actually with a friend that was one of the organizers of those protests in 2003, a few weeks ago, back in my my home of or my former home of the San Francisco Bay Area, and he was telling me. I'm paraphrasing just a tad. And he's like, look, a lot of this stuff is nothing more than a parade. He goes, in 2003, we weren't really tied to any political parties. We weren't tied to any workers' movements. And when people, me and Pascal were talking about this earlier today, there's a love affair people have with certain aspects of the 60s that they find more radical. And if you ever ask those people, well, what did those radicals get? Cats won't know how to answer. Or maybe they feel uncomfortable going, well, they got gender studies and racial studies as, as PhD degrees in certain universities. Um, but when you think about the civil rights movement, which some people look at as not radical enough, that movement was tied in with uh, political parties and workers unions. Those those signs at the March on Washington are like AFL, you know, CIO signs. Right. So that was a, a very powerful movement. Um, that's why, you know, when you, when you play those, when you want to play those clips with Malcolm X, he can interject a certain animus towards people because he doesn't have to make political, uh, alliances with anybody. He can just throw Molotovs in a room and say stuff like us, you know, when you live in this world, you're not making any, you're not trying to do movement politics. Those things are extremely different, right? So somewhere along the line, we think that movement we think that the vietnam war was stopped by flowers and guns and not the Viet Cong, right um and and there's something interesting and pascal was hitting on it with the whole like you have two generations ultimately millennials and gen xers that have no great war we have no great anything and here's the moment and people want to protest and they want to say no. And Michael Moore is kind of like the poster boy for no to Bush, no to war. And then no becomes activism. Are we out of this phase or are we still kind of are we perpetually stuck in this phase with these, these generations now? Now it's X, millennials and Zers that all are like, well, no is my activism. <clears throat> well, we well, just let me interject. Uh, sure. We we have great video games. <laughs> well, you know what the you know what the perennial answer is for gen, melanated Gen X. You know what their answer is. What's that? We get hip hop. We gave you. <laughs> <laughs> but but how do you guys collect Tucson? How do you feel about this? Are we stuck in no Hyper activism? Yeah. Hyperpolitics. Hyperpolitics, yeah. I mean, I guess to some extent, I everyone is not doing any one thing. But it's definitely easier to say no than to do a lot of other things. Let's remember something. When does hyperpolitics really begin in this era in America? When do you say it begins? When do you feel? I think real hyperpolitics starts with Bush, gets really hyper during Obama, and continues through from... It starts with Bush. It starts in the millennium. It starts with Bush, with the Iraq and Afghanistan war, and it gets hyperpolitics during... Obama, right? Because that's when we had the birth of social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Don't forget, there was no YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook during the Bush administration. It starts in Bush. It starts in 2007, 2008. Yeah, well, Facebook starts in 2004, but it's not public. Yeah. Uh, until like Some of this stuff starts before these guys, but it doesn't really blow up. Right. The first political administration, political campaign to use social media as a mechanism to shape public opinion was the Obama campaign. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that hyperpolitics starts really in the Bush era 
and continues throughout the millennium. And I would say that it would be, it would actually be uh, a, uh, it would be generous to call Gen X political compared to millennial. Gen X is probably one of the most apolitical generations. Again, largest protest in history happens with Gen X people. So I, I would push. Were back. they really Gen X? Yeah. You think all of them were born in 1980? Maybe a lot of them were boomers. You think it's and you think everybody well, yeah, that, they're late boomers. Late boomers were born like in the late 50s. There were millions of people. And you think everyone born between was it like 65 and 77 was, you know, at home playing those video games? Like, I mean, listen to them. <laughs> Gen, Gen X has ephemerally very bad politics, and they are very much politically complacent in many, 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 many ways. I'm not going to say that there were none of them that were participating in. One thing I will say also, most Generation X is from my personal experience. I don't have polling data, though I, we can find some. Did not like Bush at all. Yeah. They did like the fact that mortgage rates were so low that they could buy their first homes. I will say that, though. Not, not just low mortgage rates are lower now than they were then. It was just the ease of credit, I think. Yeah. Credit ease was a big thing as well. Mortgage rates are lower than they were 10 years exactly. prior. Yes, yes. Um, also, you have things like the Million Man March. Someone brought that, that up was in, in the 90, 95. 96, 95? 95, yeah. And the Million Man March is filled with, you know, people like me and you going there, pulling up our pants for Spike Lee. I would, yeah, the Million Man March was, a, was pretty much a symbolic, a symbolic kind of uh, affair. I mean, that speaks to your hyper-politics point where the moment that we're in is about uh, moral clarity. The 90s are a moment of moral clarity. In the 2000s, we're so happy we can get out of the ghetto with the ease of no money down loans with $700,000 caps. We haven't seen the heights of of real estate kind of appreciating the way it was because it was it was kind of appreciating so rapidly you went from because of mortgage rates homes that were twenty five thousand dollars when you bought them like maybe like 1992 and now in 1998 2000 they're worth two hundred thousand and by the time we get to 04 it's a five hundred thousand dollar piece of property and it could be in the hood and you could sell that house that you own outright get a bunch of money and go buy something bigger in the suburbs where it's quote unquote safe and, you know, a lot of people left the hood for safety. Anyone that could left the hood. <laughs> well, that sure. was, I, I don't deny that I was having in the millennium, but that started happening. Dude, that started happening in the 80s, in the 90s. That started, I mean, you have, you starting to see increases of black middle class growth starting with the Reagan years, going through the Clinton years, going into the millennium. I would agree that the asset, well, I mean, hard asset, I'm talking about real mm-hmm. estate acquisition in large numbers, because a lot of those people are still like early corporate in their early corporate years, in the late 80s and the early 90s. But in terms of, well, I mean, I'm married now. I want to start my family. Let's buy our house in Prince George's County, or let's go out get our house in Baldwin Hills. Blah blah blah. That pretty much kicks off in the millennium, late 90s in the millennium. And a lot of those folks got caught up in the subprime, you know, particularly in places like PG County. And we're seeing crime rates drop uh, because we're locking everybody up. Crime rates dropped significantly. Crime rates didn't go back up, quite frankly, until COVID. I mean, you don't really get Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow until, what, like 2010? Oh, that's that's that's, well, yeah. it's much. So late. no one's even talking about, you know, kind of the adverse effects of 1994. Well, there was, this is the thing, though. Anti-carceral politics is going on in academia in the late in the millennium, right? But in I know vividly recognized in law school, when I was in law school in the 90s, there was, in, in legal scholarship, there was anti-Clinton mass incarceration scholarship because I was taking classes and that's when I first got aware of the dangers of Bill Clinton and his uh, his 94 crime, crime bill because I was taking seminars, literally in criminal justice seminars and we were learning about, you know, this cat's Crime bill is going to be putting a lot of dudes behind bars. I, I think that I do agree with you that that hits the 
public thoroughfare as discourse, not only because of the whole kind of Michelle Alexander publication, but it's a very interesting statistic that we got to recognize, right? Is that the millenniums, more of them are born of mass incarcerated parents than any other black generation before that. That's something we got to realize. So they have a much, they have an intimate relationship with mass incarceration as young people that old prior young generations of black folk did not experience in the same degree. So that becomes a large, also a bigger part of this just whole complete opposition. To the phenomenon of mass incarceration, which is, which is a, I mean, I, I think that mass incarceration literally is one of the biggest problems of America overall. But in terms of black people from an economic development plan standpoint, it, it's a, uh, it's a nightmare. Chris, you want to chime in about black people? Totally fine. <laughs> You're safe. I'm good. You're safe. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is like, I'm not trying to get canceled. Fuck with you. <laughs> Tucson, word on the street is you're black. Do you have anything to say? Um, that part in the documentary where the guy throws the shoes, awesome. Because <laughs> the sound was just right. You you could be drifting even if you're still paying attention, and then you just hear this loud noise, and it's it's the guy throwing the shoe. His whole torso's involved. It was great. He would not be stopped. Two shoes. Two shoes. And Bush dodged him like a fucking G. He yeah. did. <laughs> and then he, he looked to the camera after he dodged him like, ha ah, you see that bitch? <laughs> yeah, he's smiling. He did everything. <laughs> so I screened I screened uh, the series in two parts, and that was in the second uh, screening. And it's like the shoe throw comes after, like, some really like crazy so you guys have seen the barney videos the barney christmas videos and uh, they're they're going wild for the last one it's like four four screen like split screen four and it's like heavy (laughs) christmas music and then like just like jump cut to that and i forgot i did that (laughs) i almost like fell off the uh chair it was like a such a jolt um but yeah that guy is I think he's trying to run for president or prime minister of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on Twitter. I forget his name right now. He is in special thanks in the credits. <laughs> um, nice. Because we, we stand. We love the guy. Um, yeah, I could not put that in. Um, <laughs> I, I think in the last episode, too, um, there's a statue to him. Which is With the shoe. The just the shoe. shoe. Yeah. Um, good guy. Very smart too. Very check out interviews um, with him. I thought he was kind of based. In the end, what do you want people to take away as we're wrapping up the hour? What do you want people to take away from this moment, with this very important political moment that I am glad you called it? Do you miss me yet? Because I remember during the early years of Trump, people would be like, "Man, this guy's so horrible. I miss you know Bush." Um, and, and whenever I would hear people say that, I'm like, yeah, really? What do you want people to to get from this seven part series? Uh, yeah, remember he sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, part of also not having like a narration, which I was never going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that um, it leads the viewer to be like, OK, why? are these laid out in the way they are? You know, why is, why is it edited in this way? Um, makes you have to be a little bit more active of a viewer. So there's things in the series that I can't really put into words so eloquently as, you know, I did earlier when I said Bush sucks. <laughs> um, but there's interesting things like contradictions that maybe we don't, think about, um, you know, and the obvious one, which we all think about is like, you know, America can, you know, cause so much destruction and then they'll go on and be like, oh, the victims of communism, like mm, really very terrible thing. Um, 
you know, so there's a lot of things like that seeded in, and I hope um, we can see, as I said before, the kind of like evolution of, um, let's say, the internet, social media, the dialogue between um, culture at large and politics, such as the sexual stuff and the religious stuff. And um, yeah, just like seeing the contradictions kind of laid out. Um, I hope people think about all of these things uh, while watching it and after watching it. And tell your friends too. I want you to think about telling your friends and then do that. Watch the series. Well, wherever you guys are watching this show, there's definitely links in the description to the series. And if you're watching the show live, Toussaint has been putting links in the chat to the documentary series on Means TV. You can watch all seven episodes uh, for free. It's 10 episodes. Um, it's free. And you don't have to sign up for it, though I do encourage uh, subscribers. So subscribe to Means TV. I want if you subscribe, you get to see the comments. That's true. Yeah. And I, I, I watched seven, so I failed. <laughs> I failed. Shitty host. Worth well, finishing. That's a lot. That's more than half. <laughs> Pascal Robert, do you have anything to say in closing? Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on and being part of our show. Very important period of time you covered in that documentary. And it's also valuable that you gave a visual narrative to a point that kind of sets off the trajectory of the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am a big fan. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank Pleasure. you for uh, uh Chris is Chris is helping me do some stuff with some of the things that I've been working on. So I appreciate his style. Actually, I had some funny jokes written in that I did not mess with you about, especially when it comes to narration. As I narrate, you don't. I was gonna jokingly say that you're lazy. <laughs> you have such a nice voice. You have such a nice voice. Uh, well, thanks. voice sucks. Comes from his pimping years. <laughs> oh my gosh. Acquired skill. Hey, you can't pimp in a shirt like this. Who says you were wearing that shirt? Wow. Wow. Good point. I can't even, there's nothing I can say. But... Touche, my good man. Uh, we are going into the champagne room. Chris, I, I know you're probably strapped for time. Are you going to join us in the champagne room? Yes. You are. Yes. I'm going to warn you right now. You will lose all of your white ally status if you join us in the champagne. Wait, what? Why? Just <laughs> raw in the champagne room, dude. <laughs> once, once you go in, we're making fun of all the things that people say you're not supposed to make fun of, and we're going to be really mean about it. It's blacker than the Soul Train. Line. It gets black. It's like Soul Train Awards black in there. Are you prepared for this? All right. <laughs> I gotta see it now. <laughs> if you guys want to join us in the champagne room, and I am so ready that Toussaint got sick of me. What day was that? Was that Saturday night, Toussaint? I don't remember. I think you it was were like, Saturday. Can this man please go back on Tinder and get a goddamn date? Because I can't take all these videos. She screenshotted all the messages. <laughs> it's like all of her notifications are me because she is like the keeper of these videos that we watch in the champagne room. And there's so many. Yeah. We have pogs. We have videos for uh, MLK Pog Chaser. We have more hip hop critiques. Mm -hmm. Contemporary hip hop critiques. Which is Pascal's favorite. Gotta love it. So, are you ready for this, Pascal? Ready to rock and roll, man. Okay. Well, look, guys, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. We're going to the Champagne Room. If you're listening to this show audio, if you're listening on Apple, which apparently 48% of the people that listen on the audio podcast listen on Apple, if you subscribe right now, you can get access to the champagne room and you can hear all the hilarity that ensues in the champagne room 
And on that note, we are out.